0: Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please be here and use the words of Scripture to help us find our value and our worth and our freedom and our strength in you and you alone. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, a few months ago, I was working out in my gym, and there was this man who kind of kept staring at me. And eventually, he came over and he said, Are you Pastor Dudley? And I said, Yeah. And he said, Yeah, I've been to your church a couple of times. It's just that you look so much smaller in the gym. (laughs) Okay, like no guy wants to be told he looks small in a gym, right? (laughs) And then he said, I guess it's just that you look ordinary when you're not preaching. This is a very affirming moment. (laughs) Well, we're doing a sermon series called Extraordinary, about not being ordinary. Uh, And we're looking at the life of David, King David in the Bible. And I think David is a great person to talk about at Christmas time, and I'll mention why a little later in the sermon. David is Israel's greatest king. He is mentioned more times in the Bible than anyone except for God. But maybe the most interesting thing about David is that he is ordinary. Unlike the stories of Moses or Elijah, there are no miracles in David's story. It's just an ordinary story about an ordinary man who just happens to become king. And he's not even very good. He commits adultery, and then he commits murder. And yet, somehow through him, God manages to do extraordinary things. And I think that's something all of us want. None of us want to walk around thinking that we're mediocre. You know, we want to feel like our lives matter, that we are significant, that we want to be great. And that starts in us very young. I remember once in first grade, we were supposed to tell a story about our families, and this was in eastern Washington back about 40 years ago, pretty conservative there then, and I told a story about how my parents were in a tornado on their honeymoon, but I wanted to make it more exciting, so I said, yeah, it was on their honeymoon, and my mom was pregnant with me which in conservative Richland didn't play very well. The teacher was sort of shocked. By the way, it was not true, just <laughs> FYI. So, and it was even kind of more shocking to the teacher since my parents both had taught in that school and were well-known, so I'm sure that made for a really interesting day that day in the teacher's lounge. And I'm sure it'll be really interesting when my parents watch the podcast of this sermon and discover I did that. <laughs> Sorry, Mom. I didn't want to be ordinary. I wanted to be a hero, in utero survivor of tornadoes. (laughs) But what David's story tells us is that regardless of how ordinary we might feel or of how our culture tells us that if you're not rich enough or good looking enough or educated enough or have this kind of job or that kind of job, well, then you're just kind of nothing special. David's story tells us that what makes us extraordinary is not fitting our culture's definition of success, but it's how God claims us, names us, and works through us, and that through Jesus, all of us can be extraordinary. Let me just give some background to David's story. We just finished talking about how Moses and Joshua led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to the Promised Land. When they get there for three hundred years, they are ruled by local leaders called judges that God raises up periodically. But then, at the end of those three hundred years, they ask to have a king to be like all the other nations, which hurts God because He is their king. And God says, "King's a bad idea. He's going to raise taxes. He's going to create taxes. He's going to start wars. Bad idea." And they said, "No, no, no. We really we want a king. Bring on the taxes." So a man named Saul becomes their first king. But Saul goes bad, as kings are prone to do. Starts disobeying God. So God rejects him as king. Not as a person, but as being king. And then God tells the prophet Samuel to go to a man named Jesse and pick one of his sons to be the new king. And that's the story we read today. And it's sort of like this beauty contest. Right? Eliab, the oldest son, goes first. And he's tall and handsome and macho. Nobody would tell him he looks small in a gym. (laughs) But God says, no, not that one. And then the second son comes along. And God says, not that one either. Pretty soon all of Jesse's sons pass by. And then and then Samuel says, Is that all you got? And Jesse says, Well, there's the youngest, which in that culture at that time meant that you were inferior. And the Hebrew word for youngest there carries the connotation of being the runt of the litter. And to make matters worse, he's a shepherd, which was considered menial work. So Jesse basically says, you don't want to talk to him. I mean, why? And David here comes off kind of like a groom at a wedding. You know, a groom at a wedding is like a restroom in an art gallery. You got to have one, but nobody goes there to see it. That's David. It's just kind of ripples of laughter it's like, as people figure that out. Oh, yeah, that, that works. Nobody goes to see David. But God has this great line. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Maybe you do not feel extraordinary today. Or maybe you think that you're all that in a bag of chips because you fit our culture's definition of what success is supposed to look like. Money, prestige, power, all of which can disappear tomorrow. And all of which cost us a lot in terms of time and stress and workaholism and tattered relationships and comparing and competing. David's story shows us we can live extraordinary lives not through slavish obedience to our culture's standards of success, but through how God works in us. If we do a couple of things. The first is this. Act as though we are who God says we are. Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. And notice that is present tense. It doesn't say you will become a new creation. It says if Jesus is the leader and forgiver of your life, the minute he entered your life, he made you a new creation. It's done deal. And this may be the most important thing I'm going to say in this sermon. So if your minds are wandering, focus, focus, focus. (laughs) Just at least on this one point. The Christian life is the process of becoming who God says we already are. The Christian life is the process of becoming who God says we already are because of Jesus. You know, a lot of times we start to think, I wish I, wish I weren't such a worrier. I wish I weren't so lustful, so angry, whatever. But, but if you know Jesus, you already right now are brave. You are free from lust. You are filled with peace and joy. Now, you may not feel that way. That's because we're getting lied to all the time. We're getting lied to by the devil who tries to make us forget who God says we are. Lied to by the wounds in our past, you know, growing up. If you were called dumb or fat or ugly or whatever, those labels can stick. And we get lied to by our culture that says if you don't have this kind of job or that kind of car or whatever, well, then you're nothing extraordinary. Someone sent me a list of questions kids were asked about Romance with, along with their answers. Fascinating stuff. One question was this. How do people in love typically behave? Wendy, age 8, said when a person gets kissed for the first time, they fall down and don't get up for at least an hour. <laughs> Wendy has very high expectations. I'm a little concerned for her husband. He might seem ordinary to her. My favorite was a question about the role physical attraction should play in romance. Sally, age nine, says this. Beauty is only skin deep, but how rich you are can last a long time. (laughs) Must have grown up in Bellevue. Now those are kind of funny, but already you can hear our culture's lies, right? You got to be rich or good looking or whatever to be important. That's not who God says we are. God says we are valuable because we belong to him and because he has given us power to partner with him in the redemption of this world. And if we just start acting like we are who he says we are, we will discover that we are who he says we are. I remember the pastor I worked for in California one day saying to me, Scott, you're a leader. And I said, Walt, I'm not a leader. I'm shy. I'm a teacher maybe, but I'm not a leader. And he said, Scott, people are following you. You're a leader. Just make sure you lead him in a good direction. It was a two-minute, life-changing conversation. From then on, I had a different understanding of my role in the world. And without that conversation, I never would have even considered coming here. He helped me see who I already was, which allowed me to act as if it were true and discover that it was. God says to David, you are not the runt of the litter. You are my anointed. And David begins to act that way and discover that it's true. Second thing that makes us extraordinary is the power of the Holy Spirit. The text says the Spirit of the Lord came on David in power. I like that, in power, not in a wimpy sort of way, but in power. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who takes our ordinary efforts, our ordinary skills, talents, and he does something extraordinary with them. The Holy Spirit is the one that magnifies all of our efforts. He is the magnifier of what we do. You know, one of the things that always intrigues me is when someone comes up to me and says, you know, Scott, last week when you said in your sermon such and such in that sermon, that was super helpful to me. And sometimes I'll be smiling and I'll go, that's great. I never said that. <laughs> You're right. That would have been an awesome thing to say if I thought about it, but no. I'm glad that's where your mind wandered to, though. Right? That's the Holy Spirit taking some ordinary words and apparently ordinary sermon, and doing something with it. Right? The Holy Spirit is the one that takes our ordinary stuff and magnifies it and makes it matter. One of you told me a story about a Christian couple you know, I'll call them Ray and Sandy, who had some friends named Jim and Linda who were interested in Jesus but couldn't commit to following him because of family traditions and their own prejudices and Ray and and, and Sandy talked with them for years, answered questions. At one point, Jim and Linda's house burned down and the church showered them with, with help. But the thing that finally convinced them Jesus was real was one day they're all going to a movie together. And parking was really tight and they finally found a spot. But just as they were pulling in, some car whipped in ahead of them and took the spot. And instead of getting upset, Ray just said, oh well, and went to look for another spot. Well, Jim considered that a miracle of biblical proportions. (laughs) And the only explanation for such patience could only be Jesus, right? So he and Linda became a Christian that night, and they've never had more joy. Now, that's a pretty ordinary event, but the Holy Spirit used it to do something out of the ordinary. We become extraordinary when we act as though we are who God says we are, when we let the Holy Spirit work through us. And finally, when we respond to God's invitation to be part of what he's doing, David could have said, no, I don't want to be king. But he didn't. And the result was his life became extraordinary. Where is God asking you to partner with him in the rescue of this world? If you say yes, amazing things will happen. Every month, the elders of this church meet Uh, to make decisions for the church and whatnot. And each meeting begins with an elder giving a brief testimony about how God has worked through their life. And I've asked one of our elders to share part of his testimony with you because I found it very moving. Because it comes from a man, he jokes a lot, you'll see he jokes a lot about being ordinary, but he's anything but. And he's allowing God to work through him in some extraordinary ways. So uh, would you please welcome one of our most ordinary elders, Dave Metz.
1: Thank you. (laughs) The cover of my high school yearbook reads, In Search of Excellence. It's a seemingly noble calling. However, as an individual who spent most of of his adolescent years desperately struggling to maintain a finger hold on mediocrity, I can tell you this elusive task at times led to feelings of alienation and struggles with self-worth. As a child, I remember my parents and I being invited to a meeting where four of my teachers, the principal vice-principal sat on one side of the table and my parents and I on the other. For an hour, I was given the tremendous opportunity to hear a lengthy list of behavioral and academic shortcomings for which I would be encouraged to improve. At the time, I didn't think much of the exercise other than I found it ironic that one of my teachers dressed in an overly snug sport coat and some mismatched pants would find that a child immersed in an image conscious culture would find his thoughts on success particularly compelling. (laughs) It was later as I entered high school, the chasm that existed between my cognitively superior friends and I began to grow, as the word prerequisite began to appear more and more in the course catalog. And what I felt like was an unrelenting effort to shine a spotlight on my limited academic achievement. I began to long for the days that I could be done with school, holding on to the belief that my excellence would be taint, obtained in the workforce. At a young age, I decided I wanted to be a financial advisor, in a large part based on a visit I had made with a friend of mine to his dad's large corner office in a downtown brokerage firm. I began to imagine the type of woman that I would want to marry and what our life together would look like. I remember telling my sister I ultimately wanted to marry an emotionally distant woman with whom I would need to spend little time as we would both be workaholics. (laughs) However, (laughs) unbeknownst to me at this time, my faith was becoming my, my own through a course of events that had started years ago when my parents had listened to a thought that was not their own and decided to adopt a little boy and raise him in a Christian home. And they did their best to help focus my eyes on the the truth that I had received my value through Jesus and not through uh, the standards that our culture has. And this would ultimately lead to a life more fulfilling. And while I certainly wasn't an easy sale, God patiently pursued me and consistently showed me ways that, uh, examples of His grace, eventually providing me with an opportunity to step out of my culture and go on a short-term mission trip to Haiti, where for the first time I was able to see how, li- how limited my life's perspective really was. I also began to see some discrepancies in the cultural promises I had believed for so many years. I remember one afternoon after having the, you may want to consider options other than college, dis- college discussion with my counselor, having a conversation with a friend of mine who was feeling equally dejected, having just found out that he had not been accepted to Yale and would be forced to accept an invitation to his fallback school, Stanford. (laughs) (laughs) I begin to think that if two people on opposite ends of the spectrum of success could have the same feelings of failure, perhaps there may be a... uh, flaw in what I was seeking to provide fulfillment. Ultimately, I made it through college, married the girl of my dreams, and became a financial advisor, just as I had envisioned years ago, with a few exceptions. For those of you who know my wife, Julie, will agree, emotionally distant, she is not. (laughs) In fact, at times, she's just plain emotional. She has, without a doubt, had a greater impact on my faith journey than any other person I've ever known. God stuck with my dream of becoming a financial advisor, not so that I could become a workaholic or amass a great fortune, but so that I could have the availability to walk walk my daughters to school or volunteer in some of their classroom parties. Or other times, it's so that my wife and I can take off on the middle of a Friday morning to go see Sasha, one of the girls that we mentor at the Jubilee Reach program, sing in a holiday recital. At times, I still have the tendency to evaluate my worth based on a culturally defined list of achievements, but at that same time, God continues to help me gain a better understanding that I do not have value based on what I have achieved, but on the gifts that I have received through Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior.
0: Thank you, Dave. That was great. Here's what I love about Dave's story. I think he's anything but ordinary. His sense of humor, his insight into the ways our culture wrecks us, his ability to name truth boldly are amazing, and I know he's made a big difference in people's lives. He's an incredibly good father and husband. He and his wife have led mission trips to Nicaragua, Guatemala, inner city Chicago to help the poor and the oppressed. They volunteered the Jubilee Reach Center to help at-risk kids in the name of Jesus. Many people would say their lives are better because of Dave and Julie Metz. And Dave can resist better than anyone I know our culture's pressure to fit into a narrow definition of success and to instead commit himself to the things that really matter. Not that he's unsuccessful. I mean, he's a financial advisor. He's doing fine. But that's not what he's living for. He's living for those extraordinary moments of walking his daughters to class or being part of God's rescue operation by helping the poor and the oppressed. There's a picture of Dave at the Jubilee Reach Center that I just love, all these kids on his back. Does he look miserable? To me, he looks like a man who is allowing Jesus to do something extraordinary with his ordinary life. He is acting as though he is who God says he is, letting the Holy Spirit empower the ordinary stuff he does to make a difference. And he is responding, yes, to God's invitation to be part of the rescue of this world. Now for you, you don't have to go on a mission trip or tutor kids. It might look different for you. It can be something as simple as investing in your own children or helping a neighbor or a coworker or, I don't know, giving up a parking spot at Christmas time. And letting the Holy Spirit do something extraordinary with those ordinary moments. Throughout the Bible, King David is portrayed as a foreshadowing of Jesus. And I don't, I don't think it's just because they were both kings or they're both born in Bethlehem or because Jesus is David's descendant. I think it's because in both Jesus and David, God shows up in ordinary human flesh. You know, other religions try to take us out of the ordinary, put us on some kind of nirvana-like spiritual place. But in Jesus, God shows up in ordinary human flesh and does the extraordinary. That's what Christmas is about. In that ordinary barn in Bethlehem, God was there. In Jesus, we see God himself in human flesh. And in King David, we see what God can do through human flesh with ordinary folk like you and me. So what about you? Tomorrow morning, will you say, Holy Spirit, take my ordinary day and make it extraordinary? Will you respond yes to God's invitation to be part of what he's doing? And will you act as though you are the person he says you are? Let me close with this analogy that I used many years ago, but I I, I want to do it again because it makes a great point. You've all seen this picture of Michelangelo's statue of David. It is considered one of the greatest statues ever carved. And here it is for you, tastefully cropped for church viewing. (laughs) But the stone from which it was cut was rejected by every artist in Italy as being hopelessly flawed stone. It had cracks, blemishes, spots. It was a mess. But Michelangelo worked on it for three years. And when he finally unveiled this statue, all the artists said, how did you get such a beautiful statue from such a flawed stone? And Michelangelo said it was easy. I looked at the stone and saw David inside and then chipped away everything that wasn't David. There are those in our life, maybe even yourself, who says, you know, you're hopelessly flawed. Nothing good can come of you, you're ordinary. But God looks inside of you and he sees the you you really are in there. And then he chips away everything that isn't you, everything that isn't me. And he says, You are not ordinary. You are not beyond repair. You are not flawed. I can make you a work of art. I can make you extraordinary. So will you let him chip so that you, through him, can become extraordinary in all you do, think, and are because of Jesus. So Lord Jesus, chip away and make us extraordinary in your sight because of you. And we'll give you the credit in Jesus' name Amen.